Please join me in prayer. Lord, you are the good shepherd. You lead us to green pastures. You lead us beside still waters. You restore our souls. And we thank you for this Lord's Day that you've given us when we can gather as a congregation and be restored through the preaching of your word and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through the means of grace to our souls. And we pray, Father, for your help today that we would worship you with the right attitude and that we would seek above all to honor you with our thoughts and with our fellowship. We ask, O oh Father, that you would continue to strengthen this congregation and give us grace in our dealings with one another and in our outreach to those outside of the walls of this building who desperately need the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that is found only in him. Strengthen us this day. Bless us. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth and with joyful hearts continue to do that good work in us that you have begun and that you will complete on the day of Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, as we prepare ourselves for further worship this morning, as we prepare ourselves to hear your word read and to hear your word explained through the preaching, please be with us and guide us and give us hearts that desire to serve you and to honor you and may our desire be expressed this morning as we pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The reading of the law this morning is Exodus chapter 24 verses 1 through 8 that's exodus chapter 24 verses 1 through 8 this is the word of god then he said to moses come up to the lord you and aaron adab and abihu and 70 of the elders of israel and worship from afar moses alone shall come near to the lord but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it, and the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. God calls Moses and Israel's leaders up the mountain in order to confirm his covenant through sacrifices. It was through the blood of the covenant that Israel became God's people, and through this same blood that God's people might see the God of Israel and enjoy his presence. Today we are members of the new covenant. 
Today our trust is not in the blood of animals. Our trust is in the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins. This is the blood of Jesus, our Savior. Now please find the part of your bulletin titled Confession of Sin and read the confession as a prayer along with me. Heavenly Father, like the Israelites, we are sinners. We need to be cleansed from our sins. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to die on the cross, to shed his blood for sinners and cleanse us from our sins. Lord, continue to give us faith in the finished work of Christ. It is in Jesus' name to you we pray. Amen. Amen. From the gospel this morning is found in Matthew 26, 26 through 29. That's Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29. This is the word of God. Now, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after blessing, 
he broke it, and giving it to the disciples, he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In the old covenant, the blood of sacrificed animals set apart people, or God's people, as holy to the Lord. But they had to keep making sacrifices because they continued to sin and rebel against a holy God. But now, in the new covenant, we are cleansed once and for all from, for our sins through the shed blood of Jesus. Christ's death saves us and also purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, please find the part of your bulletin entitled, We Confess Our Faith. We are now going through the part of the Baptist Catechism dealing with the God's moral law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments. I will read aloud the catechism question, and then we together as a congregation will read aloud the answer. Question 114. What does the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach? Answer. The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, which is, For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen teaches us to take our encouragement in prayer from God only, and in our prayers to praise him, ascribing kingdom, power, and glory to him, and in testimony of our desire and assurance to be heard, we say, amen.
We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews and the ninth chapter, the book of Hebrews and the ninth chapter this morning as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews. And I will be reading and then preaching this morning on verses 15 through 22. That's Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. And I encourage you to read along silently as I read this text aloud this morning. For here the writer states, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who were called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For if a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wood and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your kind providence in bringing us here to service today, and we would ask for your help that you would enable us by your spirit to worship you in spirit and in truth and to honor you in all that we do. And we ask now that as we come to the preaching of the word and to the hearing of the word, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and guide and that he would reveal to us the truth, the significance of this passage before us today, and that he would apply it to our own minds, to our consciences, and to our understanding in such a way that our thinking is renewed and transformed and our conduct is also transformed as well that we might truly be the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and walk in his ways. So bless us now. Lead us into all truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Brethren, as we considered last week, the ministry that Jesus Christ performed in God's greater and more perfect tent far exceeded the ministry that the priests performed in God's earthly tent during the days of the Old Covenant. For when the priests ministered back in God's earthly tent, they were simply following the pattern that had been given to them by Moses. And they did so without any assurance that anything permanent or lasting would result from their ministries. In fact, those priests simply strived to be faithful to what had been revealed to them about the nature of God's holiness and about the need for sacrifices in order to atone for the people's sins and for their own sins as priests and ministers as well. In fact, everything about the earthly tent, from the furnishings that it contained to the order of service that had to be followed, pointed to the fact that a greater sacrifice, yes, a truly permanent sacrifice was required. And yet its fulfillment was still some distance away. For the blood of goats and calves could not remove sin. And as long as the earthly tent stood, as long as sacrifices were being offered on a continual basis, they were but reminders that a greater priesthood, and more importantly, a greater sacrifice, was still needed. And praise God, these needs were addressed through the work of Christ. And they were addressed in a way that richly showcased the great love and mercy of God beyond anything that sinful man could have ever imagined. 
For when Jesus, after his glorious ascension into heaven, entered into God's greater and more perfect tent, he offered up that which alone appeased God's wrath against sin, and that was his very own blood. For what the blood of goats and calves could not do, because it contained and conveyed no saving power, our Lord's blood, on the other hand, accomplished permanently and beyond measure. For the power of Christ's sacrificial blood not only secured our eternal redemption, but it provided us, according to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, with a purified conscience and a heart that is eager to serve the living God. For all that the old covenant demanded, but men were incapable of doing, has been provided for us through the work of Jesus Christ and the eternal spirit who purifies our consciences from dead works and sets our hearts free to serve him. Amen. So what Jesus accomplished in God's greater and more perfect tent fulfilled everything that God's earthly tent had previously stood for, and it also provided God's people with spiritual blessings and spiritual benefits that they never could have experienced under God's previous spiritual economy. And of course, it is this last point that the writer now develops here in our text this morning, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. For when Jesus completed his redemptive work in God's greater and more perfect tent, he not only did what no other high priest could possibly do, but he assumed an office for his people that is greater than any other office that was occupied by the representatives of God under the old covenant, whether those representatives be Moses or the former high priests of Israel or whoever else we might want to mention all combined together because Jesus assumed his office as the mediator between God and man. The one who is uniquely representing both God and man who were once at odds with one another and he has reconciled them together. And he has accomplished this under a glorious new covenant, which was purchased by his blood. For his blood, his shed blood, his precious blood shed, secured peace between God and man. Assured peace between us and God. In fact, the writer begins in verse 15 by declaring without any hesitation or qualification, therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. A new covenant. Let those words sink in. A new covenant. What Jesus accomplished in God's heavenly tent not only put an official end to what was done under the old covenant, that began a new spiritual economy altogether, a new spiritual age, if you will, for all that God had promised under the new covenant, which is described, you'll recall, back in Hebrews chapter 8 and verses 10 through 12, became a reality. It became an actual reality for the people of God when Jesus offered up his own blood as an all-sufficient, permanent offering for sin. And as the mediator of a new covenant, Jesus was able to introduce, Jesus was able to inaugurate a new spiritual economy which fulfilled the promise of an eternal redemption as the writer states here in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. For under the economy and the administration of the new covenant, God's elect people finally received from Christ a new mediator, a redemption 
that was established and secured by the perfect work of Christ himself. In fact, Christ is the surety of the new covenant. He's the surety of the new covenant. What do we mean by that expression? He is the one who ensures its fulfillment. He is the one who could not fail but give the blessings of the covenant since he has purchased them himself with his own blood. In fact, as we'll see a little later in our text this morning, Christ's blood is so linked with the successful outcome of the new covenant that it is called the blood of the covenant. That's how closely they're associated together. It's the blood of Jesus Christ, the spilt blood of Jesus Christ that creates and that gives the new covenant its power. It creates and gives the new covenant its power. And so as we consider why Jesus became the mediator of the new covenant, we must credit the fact that Jesus willingly shed his own blood in order to inaugurate it. For the new covenant was purchased for us by one who was willing to shed his blood for those who were undeserving, for those who deserved eternal punishment in hell, for that was the purchase price, his blood for our eternal redemption. And then not only did Jesus shed his very own blood in order to bring in, to usher in, to inaugurate the new covenant, but he also offered up his own life. Let's not forget this. He offered up his own life to fulfill the legal conditions of our spiritual release from the old. To fulfill the legal obligations, conditions for our release from the old. For under the legal demands of the old covenant, death was required as a consequence of violating God's law. It could only be through the pain of death. It could only be through the death of one who was entirely innocent of all sin that justice could be satisfied against the transgressions that had been previously committed. And of course, this is what Jesus accomplished through his own death in our place. Notice the writer states here in the latter part of verse 15 of this chapter that Jesus was fully able to function as our mediator and to fulfill God's promises to his people since a real death has occurred. A real death, not an imaginary death. A real death has occurred that redeems people from the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Therefore, when Jesus died, he took the curse of the law upon himself. And in dying upon the cross, in giving up his own life, and by the way, he didn't merely swoon on the cross, he died on the cross. In giving up his life on the cross, Jesus permanently removed the sentence of death from those who come to him for life. And yet this is not everything that transpired through and because of our Lord's death. For the writer also makes it clear here in our text. Notice this, that Jesus had to die in order for the blessings and the benefits of the new covenant to be fully realized. For just as a man's inheritance is not legally passed down to his descendants apart from the occurrence of his death, so God's people could not receive the blessings of the new covenant until Christ, the one mediator of that glorious covenant, died as well. For only upon Christ's death could his last will and testament be executed. Think about that. Only upon his death could his last will and testament go into force and be executed and go into force on our behalf. In fact, this is precisely the legal process that the writer to the Hebrews is referring to here in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 9. 
for he declares, notice these verses, for where a will, and what is a will? It's a legal promise that is fulfilled upon death. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And again, we see here, brethren, why it is that Christ had to die. And it was not because of anything that he owed to us, but it was because of what he knew he must do under the law in order for the spiritual blessings and benefits that he knew that he would obtain to be legally passed down to us through and in the new covenant. And of course, just as an aside, this is what we are reminded of, brethren, every time we observe the Lord's Supper. I want you to think about the Lord's Supper for a moment and the significance of that means of grace. For as we consider the Lord's Supper, which is focusing upon the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are to think of the blessings that we have received through it by means of the new covenant. For it was necessary that Christ taste and that Christ experience death to ensure that you and I receive our promised inheritance. That's what our reflection upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ at the Lord's table reminds us of. Of what that meant and that process that Jesus went through. For as the writer states at the end of verse 17, a, a person's will is not in force as long as he is alive. And so while Jesus knew long before he came to this earth what he would actually accomplish as the covenant mediator and how he would bless his people through the new covenant, he still submitted voluntarily to death. And he submitted voluntarily to a violent death so that you and I might enjoy the inheritance that he purchased for us. Even so, even before our Lord became the mediator of the new covenant, he willingly shed his own blood. He suffered a substitutionary death for us and both of these acts of love and divine mercy toward us are, are mentioned here in verses 15 through 17 of Hebrews chapter 9 because they reveal so much to us about our Lord. And yet let us notice here in the rest of our text in verses 18 through 22, the writer focuses again on the significance of blood. There are some who criticize Christianity for being a bloody religion, for placing too much emphasis upon death and too much emphasis upon blood. But I think we get a sense of why now, don't we? We understand the significance of it. And once again, without hesitation, without apology, the writer comes back to this idea of, of sacrificial blood, and especially on the use of blood under the first covenant and then with Jesus Christ under the second covenant. The use of blood under the first covenant under the direction of its mediator, Moses. And no doubt the writer mentions Moses and the first covenant to prepare us for a discussion of how Christ offered his blood in a, in a similar but a different way. A similar but a different way. Similar, yes, in that blood is used. Different in terms of the blood itself. Not the blood of goats and calves, the blood of Jesus Christ, the powerful, precious blood of Jesus. And of course, as we begin to move into verses 23 through 28, next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll focus more on the blood and the ministry of Christ as well. But for now, let's just focus on verses 18 through 22 and the, and the writer draws our attention back to the use of sacrificial blood under the old covenant economy and he begins here in verse 18 by reminding us note this that not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood 
And this is important to mention because the writer is seeking to establish for us that the spilling of blood was always required under the old covenant as a means of obeying and upholding the covenant and its obligations. So when we get to this whole subject of blood related to Christ in the New Testament or the New Covenant, we, we recognize that it was well established as a requirement under the Old Covenant. And the proof of this was the way in which the First Covenant was inaugurated under Moses. For when the covenant was inaugurated under Moses, Moses used blood as a way to communicate the significance of the holy covenant that was then being established between the Lord and Israel. In fact, this passage was read in our hearing this morning in the reading of the law in Exodus 24 verses 3 through 8. That passage actually speaks of the inauguration of the first covenant with blood. For we read beginning in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 3 that Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules or literally all the commandments of the Lord. And the people answered with one voice and said... All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Amen. That should be the collective response of God's people, right? All that the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord and rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men from the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. So here's the use of blood. And he's not just disposing of the blood in some needless way. He's using the blood in a very deliberate and purposeful way. And then he took the blood of the covenant, referring to the first covenant, you'll recall, and read it in the hearing of the people, excuse me, and all that the Lord had spoken, we will do, the people said, we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and notice this, he threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. I want us to get a visual picture in our minds this morning of what is taking place. As Moses is taking this blood, he throws it against the altar. He takes some of the blood, and according to the text, he actually throws it on the people. Imagine that for just a moment. Imagine that. Imagine the people standing in the presence of Moses when he throws the blood on them. It lands on them, on their faces, on their arms, on their chests, on their bodies. And he's saying, behold the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you. Get a load of that picture for a moment. Imagine what that was like. And he mentions the fact that after reading all the commandments and throwing the blood upon the people, that he also sprinkled the book itself as well. He's putting blood everywhere, isn't he? Everywhere. For not only was the blood of the sacrifice to touch and in essence cover and purify the altar and be upon the people of God, but it was also to be closely associated with the commandments of God as well. For it would later be through Christ's shed blood that the power to honor and keep God's commandments would be given to the people. And yet the main point that we should not overlook in the writer's summary here of what transpired in Exodus 24 is that at the inauguration of the first covenant, the blood of calves and goats was sprinkled on everything. 
everything. Nothing in the area was not touched in some way by the blood. The writer declares here in verse 18 that not even the first covenant was inaugurated without the shedding of blood. To be honest with you, this is an understatement. An understatement. Everything was covered with blood. He's making an understatement here for emphasis, for effect, for the blood of sacrifices was everywhere to be seen. Everywhere. On the altar, on the people, on the word of God as well. For in order for the first covenant to be established on the right basis and to point to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ for his people, there had to be the presence of blood. And not only was the sprinkling of this blood intended to remind them of the lives that had been taken, but it was intended to confirm to them that this blood had been shed on their account. All right, I don't know how to adequately emphasize this. I was thinking about this as I was preparing this morning. I don't, I don't know how to really convey this in a way that would be as powerful as what happened on that day. But can you imagine not only being splattered by blood as the people of God, but then knowing that that blood was for you? That the lives that were taken were lives that were taken because of your sin. That the innocent life that was taken and the blood that was shed was because of what you did or failed to do. I think that would be a powerful thing to realize at that moment. Of course, you know where I'm going as we proceed on to think about what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us and his blood. For as the blood of the slain animals fell upon them, they were to know with certainly, certainty that they were not only the cause of the death of those animals, but they were actually the ones for whom this shed blood was intended. And no doubt, as the people of God heard Moses cry out, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you, they were reminded not only of the costliness of their disobedience, but they were reminded of their need for obedience to God in light of what was happening. Surely, beloved, if I may take the liberty to make a, a new covenant application here without the running the risk of misapplying this, that we need to rem remember that as we think about the Lord's sacrifice, this principle applies to you and I as well. For when we as believers in Christ are gathered for the Lord's Supper in celebration of the inauguration of the new covenant, and when we hear those stirring words quoted to us before we take care of that ordinance, before we partake, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, our hearts should also reflect on the costliness of our redemption. And not in a fearful way, but in a grateful way, we should reflect upon what it costs the Lord Jesus to redeem us. And our desire should be to serve our covenant mediator who died willingly for us. For surely it's reasonable to expect that his grace should inspire our, our loving service. But again, beloved, the focus here in our text is upon the blood that was shed under the first or the old covenant. For not only was blood sprinkled on the altar, again, not only on the people, but on the written commandments of God. But we're also reminded that it was sprinkled in the same way upon the tent or upon the tabernacle, which we looked at two weeks ago, and upon all the vessels that were utilized in worship for everything needed to be purified by blood. Everything. And no doubt, this widespread use of blood, even after the inauguration of the first covenant, pointed to the fact that there was a constant need for forgiveness, and the many sacrifices under the first covenant could never perfect those who made them. For the blood of goats and calves could never remove sins. It could only temporarily cover them. 
And of course, this requirement for blood continued throughout the duration of the old covenant, as you know, which is referred to as that period under the law. For the writer states, beginning here in verse 22, that indeed under the law, almost everything is purified by blood. Many, many references to blood here, is there not? And therefore, it is impossible, brethren, to truly understand the nature of God's first covenant with Israel or Israel's worship under that covenant without an appreciation for the degree to which blood was required. In fact, to be absolutely candid with you, brethren, the sacrifices that were required under the old covenant made the sight of blood a very common sight for Israel. If you were a faithful Israelite and you knew anything about the religion of Israel, then you were well acquainted with the sight of blood. It was a common sight. Now that's how our practice and faith differs a great deal from that of believers under the old covenant, is it not? We're not completely saturated with this idea, this image of blood. We're, we're not covered with the blood in that physical sense of sight. But under the old covenant, everything was associated with blood. For the reason, again, is mentioned in verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And therefore, before Christ came, the sight and the smell of blood was closely associated with true worship. And to have an altar or a tent or furnishings without blood would be to reject the way God had appointed for worship. And yet soon, with the dawning and the inauguration of the new covenant under Christ, the only blood that would be needed would be that which Christ himself has already supplied and carried into God's greater and more perfect tent. So whereas under the old, all the blood was spilled everywhere... Sprinkled even on the people. Under the new covenant. Christ takes the blood. And he takes it to heaven. He takes it into that greater and far better tent. And there it is presented to God. The only blood that would be needed. Which Christ himself had supplied and carried into God's greater and more perfect tent had been taken there. For in the same manner, in a manner that far exceeded what, what Moses did in Exodus 24 when he sprinkled the altar and the people and the law of God at the base of the mountain, Jesus entered into that place that did not need to be purified. Think about that. That heavenly tent did not need to be purified. But he takes it in there anyway and he presents his own blood in exchange for a spiritual purity and eternal redemption that only he can provide. And we'll examine these themes far more next week. But for now, let us rejoice in what Christ has done for his people. Let us hear his familiar cry, Christ's familiar cry. This is the blood, my blood, my blood, that God has commanded for you. And in hearing these encouraging and renewing words, let us be of good cheer. Let us be of good cheer. For his blood has made us perfect in God's sight. His blood along with the work of the eternal spirit has purified our consciences and enlivened our hearts. His blood has changed us. It has transformed our standing before God forever. And when we think about that, let us respond to this gracious provision from God with gratitude and joyful obedience. Brethren, let us reflect today upon the necessity of blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, and yet the blood that was necessary is not on us now. It's not on the altar here on earth. 
It's not even on the book of the law. It's on the altar in heaven. Delivered by Jesus Christ. It speaks of our eternal redemption. And that is where our hope is today. May we be encouraged by that good news. And may we be thankful for the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for this very graphic description of what transpired under the old covenant. We thank you for these repeated references to blood because although it makes us uncomfortable and sometimes even squeamish to hear so much about blood, even the thought of blood being sprinkled on the people, it's necessary that we understand the necessity of blood under the old covenant and it's necessary that we understand that Jesus Christ did the same and yet in a far greater way and in some ways different way for us that we might know and enjoy the benefits and blessings of his permanent and all-sufficient sacrifice which has been established in heaven. And Lord, may these truths seep deep into our minds this morning. May they draw out from us feelings, expressions of gratitude and thankfulness for all that has transpired for us and how we are so privileged even above and beyond those who lived under the old covenant to know the forgiveness of sins because of the blood that's been shed. So we pray that you'll strengthen us and give us hope and help us to know that our salvation is secure, not because of what we do, not because of what we resolve to be faithful about, but because Jesus Christ has already accomplished the work for us. It's already been secured. He is our surety. He ensures our eternal redemption. He's already satisfied the demands of the law. He's already offered up that perfect blood that's a perfect sacrifice for us. Bless us and encourage us as a people through these words today, for we ask them in Jesus' name.